Psalm 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, again, good afternoon. If I haven't got to meet you, my name is Aaron. I'm one of our pastors and preachers here at the Trails, and it's great to be gathering under God's Word, specifically under Psalm 1 and 2. Now, last week, we started this summer series, so it's a series we will only do in summer, hence summer series, and, uh, and we're going to be walking through the Psalms. So for about two, two and a half months out of the year, we will be walking through Psalms, which means last week, we started a study that will take us approximately 12 years, which is a long time. Some of you will be moved out of your family's house and maybe living as missionaries in Abu Dhabi by that point. That would be my prayer for some of you. Uh, or, or maybe somewhere else. Maybe God might have you elsewhere. But, but if you're here with us, we'll still be trucking right on through the book of Psalms. Now, Psalms is located directly in the middle of your Bible. It is the hymn book of the Bible and can be found right in the middle. There are 150 chapters, and, and uh, I, I wanted to, to, to tell us, uh, remind us of two things that we talked about last week. That way, if it's your uh, first time, if you weren't able to, to listen to the sermon from last week, or, or you're, you're at the lake or something celebrating Canada Day, uh, and, and you're, you're just popping in, what are the two kind of big things you need to know uh, before we walk in today? So the first one is this. The book of Psalms is a book of the Bible. Now, we talked about that last week, but this is an important thing. This means that the content and the arrangement of these Psalms, and this, this book is inerrant and infallible. Therefore, we ought to, as God's people, study it just like we would any other book of the Bible. It's a book. Thus, we need to try to understand, just like we do in every book of the Bible, what the text is saying. What, what, do, what do these words mean? Then how, how does it play out in the context around it? What is the message of the book? What is the overall message of what that author is saying? And why is it here in the big storyline of the Bible? So, so we need to remember the original audience, maybe how they received this song and then how they would sing it. And then how is this song sung throughout Israel's history as a nation? Why is that important? And then, and then we look forward to, we anticipate how, how every jot and tittle of the Bible looks forward to Jesus. How does this look forward to him? And then we begin making applications in our lives. So while you might be tempted to read the Psalms in a way where you just read it and then immediately apply it into your life, you ought not to do so because, as we said last week, you are not the anointed king of Israel. So if there's something about the anointed king of Israel and you're like, that's me, it's not you. So you shouldn't be saying that's you because you're not him. So uh, that's the first thing. Secondly, as we study the book, we remember that Psalms is one book that is made up of five smaller books. One book, five smaller books. Easy to remember because you have a hand. One hand, five fingers. 
Book of Psalms, five books. There you go. I just, you're welcome. There you go. Uh, so, so it's one book that's five smaller books, and it's been carefully categorized and purposefully ordered in such a way that these songs actually build upon and interpret one another. So just like every good book that you love, you start at chapter one and you walk through it. Lord of the Rings, that you just finished today. You start chapter one, you work your way through. You don't start at the end. You start at the beginning, you work your way, and you see how themes and things develop as you walk through reading God's word. And the same thing happens in the book of Psalms. That's what I spent all of last, last week's sermon arguing for. If you're wondering what is my main argument of the entire thing last week, it's that exactly, that, that these songs build upon one another and interpret one another. And that these five books of Psalms work together. And remember what they do is, is they trace the history of Israel from David's rise to power amidst suffering in book one, then throughout David's reign as king in book two, then down that kingly line until book three, where we see the exile of Israel, right? Where Israel is wondering if God has forgotten all of his promises to David and to Israel. But then we see book four, Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses, where Moses is brought back into the picture. Then he asks in that Psalm that the Lord would turn and relent from his wrath on his people. Then we're reminded in the rest of book four of God's character and nature, ending with this longing to be redeemed, to be brought out of exile and back into the promised land. And then book five is the glorious fulfillment of that. It opens with Israel being called God's redeemed people. And then we see how this entire book, therefore, celebrates how God brought Israel back into the promised land. Thus, all of the Psalms work together to rehearse Israel's history, but also they look forward to the end. There's this coming future Davidic king in Psalm 110 who will usher in the kingdom of God. And when that happens, all of God's enemies will be vanquished. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and the seed of the serpent. It's a great, great book. And if you missed that sermon last week and you want to explore that a little bit more, you can go back and listen to it. It, it kind of gives the, the 30,000 foot view of the entire book. So what we are seeing then when we open up Psalms, the book of Psalms and read Psalm 1 and 2, it, as you noticed, as I read that a moment ago, it, it's like a little microcosm of everything that we see happen in the book. Did you see all those themes presented in Psalm chapter one and two? They're letting you know all that will happen inside of the entire book. We see the main characters. We see how there's this blessed man in Psalm one, this ideal Israelite, this representative example for the entire nation who then, as we see in Psalm two, is none other than the anointed king of Israel. We then see that there's this animosity that the wicked have towards God and his anointed king, this Messiah. So what we see this is them raging and, and setting themselves up and taking counsel together against God's chosen king. But we also see God's sovereign hand over the entire situation, don't we? For while the nations are raging against God, we know they will not be victorious. They will not win. Rather, God has set his king upon his throne and all nations will bow before him. So there's this warning given that the wicked nations who conspire and scoff against God and his king, they ought to repent, submit to God's word and God's anointed king and run to him for refuge and they will be spared. Not only that, but but those who are wicked and deserve judgment will be called, as we see in 2.12, blessed. They will find refuge in the blessed one of Psalm 1.1, and they will be called blessed. So the whole text from beginning to end is just tied together inextricably, Psalm 1 and 2. And I want to spend some time showing you that while also explaining some of what we are going to see happening in the text, right? Some of the blessings as well as some of the warnings so that as we come to Psalms like this, we, we understand, and, and Psalms like 34, like the one that, that we sang a moment ago, this, this beautiful hymn, you see some of the same repetition of vocabulary even in there. So, so Psalm 1 and 2 is going to set the stage and it's going to keep getting repeated back and rehearsed and remembered over and over and over again. So as we come to these Psalms, we understand what is unfolding in them. Our goal as Christians is that we might understand these Psalms, that we might pray them rightly and praise God rightly with the tone, the, the melody of, of what this scripture is meant to do in our hearts and lives. See, what I'm convinced is, is that oftentimes as Christians, we read the Psalms too shallowly. 
It's too shallow. There is greater joy. There is better affections. There are more wonderful longings to be had in the text than what we have experienced as his people because we read them as segmented from one another and having nothing to do with Jesus. But friends, when we read God's word in the way that it is intended, oh, there is great comfort and great joy that fuels us as his people to walk through everything that we walk through in life, knowing that Christ will one day be victorious over everything. And that fuels us with joy, comfort, desire, longing, peace in the midst of every situation that we walk through. So that's my goal. I want to help you see it better and love it. All right? Great. So let's start back. Psalm 1. And we do so, Psalm 1-1, by noting that this psalm is, is it's really important in, in opening up, the, in setting the scene, the entire book, as it puts on display this ideal Israelite, this pattern, this example for the nation of Israel of how God's people ought to be, which is, which is typified and lived out by the king of Israel. Thus, the king is to be this kind of man, this godly example for the nation to follow as he turns away from the way of the wicked and devotes himself to delighting in and meditating upon God's word, confident that the way of the wicked will perish, but all who follow Yahweh's precepts and regulations will walk on the path to life and righteousness and blessing. Now, that's, that's what someone's pointing out to us. Now, what's interesting about someone is that we don't immediately see a list of all the things that the blessed man is to give himself to. Rather, poetically, we are introduced to the man and then immediately told of three things that he is not to do, followed by a command, a command of just what he does do. So three things of what he's not to do, followed by just what he does do. So what does this man do? Well, firstly, we see he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, immediately there, as you're, as you're reading through this, you notice that there is a division that is made. For if there is the counsel of the wicked, then there must be the counsel of the godly the counsel of the Lord. So immediately there's a, a division that's made, which if we look at verse two, we see is the law of the Lord. So we know rather than walking in the counsel of the wicked, this representative example, this king over Israel, he is to walk in the counsel of the Lord. Secondly, we see that he does not stand in the way of sinners. Rather, as we see in verse six, he is in the way of the righteous. And thirdly, he then is not sitting in the seat of scoffers. And in context, we know that the wicked are those who are scoffing at God's law. So this ideal Israelite, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor does he stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. And what most scholars will point out in these verses is that the way of the wicked has kind of a downward progression. You see it, they're walking and they're standing, and then at the end, they're seated. That's this downward Progression. It goes from moving in the, the wrong kind of counsel. You're not walking towards the Lord in godliness. You're walking away from the counsel of the righteous towards the counsel of the, the wicked, meaning you're, you're listening to wrong voices. You're listening to voices who hate the things of God. Then, secondarily, you're standing in a wrong way of life. You have this settled disposition towards sin and rebellion, and then it ends by sitting in the wrong kind of seat, specifically one that speaks and mocks arrogantly against God's word. And if we're thinking about that, if we even just pause for a moment, we'd see that this is exactly the pattern of all sin. This is the pattern of all sin. I mean, I mean, consider our culture. If we were to trace how our culture got to the place where it is right now, where they openly scoff and mock at God's word and God's law, right? How did they, how did they get there, you might wonder? How, how, that's what we ask ourselves sometimes, how did we get here? What, how, did, how are we here? Well, if we, if we follow this downward progression, we, this is exactly what we would see. First, our culture began walking in the council of the wicked. They walked away from the counsel of the Lord. Then they followed by kind of a settled disposition against God's word. 
And then they sat in the seat of scoffers. There was this all-out war against God's word. Thus, every bit of God's word now is called hate speech for simply proclaiming what God's word says. But, but this isn't just something that we notice kind of out there in the world, like, oh, the culture, boo on them. Rather, rather I want to bring us a little bit closer to home because I, I would contend that this actually is the way that all of us walk into all kinds of sin in our own lives. I mean, is, think about the regression here. Isn't this what you see in your own life with sin? Think about, think about the sin in your life for a moment. Maybe it's the sin that everybody knows about. Maybe it's very public. Maybe it's the kind of sin that, that nobody knows about. Now, now think through, how did you end up here? How, how does this now, how is this now something that marks your life? And I put before you that it's the same downward progression that we see in Psalm 1-1. That's how we got here. That, that, that maybe, maybe you could trace this downward progression over the course of a few years of your life. Maybe, maybe it's, it's this relationship and then that boss and then this activity and here I am. Or maybe you can trace certain sins that transpire maybe even over the course of a weekend or, or, or maybe even over the course of an afternoon. Right? So, so for example, this starts with, with you, you know something is a sin. You, you, you know it, but, but you participate in it. Right? And you don't immediately get struck down by God. Right? It, it seems that you got away with it and you, and you kind of like it. The thrill of it is exciting because you're doing this, this thing that you know you shouldn't do, but you do it and it's exciting and it's thrilling. There doesn't seem to be any consequences. Nobody seems to notice. So you do it again and again and again until it becomes your habit. You begin standing in it. So you go from walking in it to just you're in it. This is a settled disposition. This is where you'll hear yourself or other people say, I've always been this way. I just, this is something I'm always going to have. This is always going to mark my life. Always. I'm just, I'm settled with it. It's just there. But the downward progression doesn't stop there. Rather, what we see is that eventually you move one step further downward, and you begin believing the lie that evil is good and good is evil. You begin scoffing at the law of God. That's, that's where we all end. Thus, built into Psalm 1-1 is a warning for the wicked right out of the gate for people like us that walking in the counsel of the wicked leads to standing in the way of sinners, which leads to scoffing at the law of God. Which leads Psalm 2 to all-out war against God and his anointed king. Which leads to judgment, as there's coming a day when we will come under the fury of God's wrath for our rebellion. See, friends, the problem, the problem is not out there somewhere. That's not where the problem is. The problem is in here. It's deep in your chest and it's deep in mine. This, this downward progression of sin just marks every single person. This is why, by the way, mystery of mysteries, we see at the beginning of verse one and then verse two bookends this downward spiral of wickedness that is just terrible. And we notice something really peculiar. Though this is our experience, this is not the experience of the blessed man. He does not have this experience that we have. Rather, verse 2 explains that this ideal Israelite doesn't fall prey to this trap of wickedness. And we see why. It's because he delights, he takes pleasure in something better. 
It's the reason why he's not on the path of the wicked is because he delights in the law of the Lord. That is what fuels him. But, but what is the law? Well, the law is a word we've heard before. It's the word Torah. And it originally refers to the first five books of our Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But as other books were added into the canon of scripture, it's important to note they would also come under this umbrella term of Torah. And so, so the Hebrew term here suggests not simply just the first five books of the Bible, but rather holistically, everything that the king delights in is the story of God's acts of deliverance of his people and all of the instruction that God has given in his word. This is what the blessed man delights in. This is the history of God's acts of salvation for his people and all of the instruction that God gives in his word. He delights in God's word and he meditates on it. That's what, that's what keeps him away from the counsel. He, he hears the counsel of the wicked. He's like, no, no, don't think so. He, he hears him speak. Hey, believe this. No, he has the counsel of the Lord is so on his mind that, that the counsel of the wicked is fruitless to him. He sees no point in it. Now, now, lest you see this word meditate here and have some kind of weird age, like new age mystical, mm, meditation, uh, which your phone will tell you to do from time to time. It's very strange. Now, uh, when, when Christians use this word meditate, um, we do not mean it in the same way that the New Age mystics mean it. New Age mystics will tell you that meditation means that you're emptying your mind of all things. Christians, rather, when we talk about meditating, we don't talk about emptying our minds, but rather filling them. So it's a polar opposite meaning of the word. We were talking about filling our minds with the word of God and reflecting on who God is and how he's revealed himself through his word. Thus, the word meditate here renders a Hebrew verb for kind of muttering or, or musing. So, so the image here is that there is a man who goes around, this ideal Israelite, he just walks around reciting the words of the Torah to himself continuously. So he rehearses Israel's history and he sings songs to himself that remind him of God's acts of redemption. That's what he's quick to talk about. He loves remembering God's word. And notice as well that this man is blessed, not just because he reads the Torah, not just because he knows God's word. No, he's called blessed because he delights in it. He delights in it. You see that? So he has, as Nino said a few weeks ago, this man does have right orthodoxy. He has right theology. And he has right orthopraxy. He lives out the commands in obedience to God's word but he also has right orthopathy. He, he feels and loves and cherishes things rightly. That's what the ideal Israelite re does is he rejoices over God's law and God's faithfulness throughout the generations. And this delight spills over into his life, producing fruitfulness. So how he speaks and how he lives and what he meditates on and what he delights in bubbles over and it produces in his life fruitfulness, stability, and strength. So much so that the psalmist, when he's trying to figure out, how do I, what, what do I compare this dude to? He thinks of this mighty tree, like this sturdy tree. And that's where he goes to next in verse three. He, he says, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. And to think about what we know about Israel's history, isn't this exactly what we see happen when there are godly kings and king-like figures who love God's word and submit to it, who refuse to walk in the counsel of the wicked and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers? When those men, these good kings that love the Lord and love his, his law, when those men are leading the nation, what does Israel do under their leadership? Yell at me. They prosper, they flourish. But when Israel is led by a bad and evil king, what happens to them? Really terrible stuff. You know what I mean? So, so th this completely makes sense. When there's good kings, God's word is upheld and honored and God's people follow this king's good and godly example and the nation flourishes. But when there's evil kings, people are led astray by this king and things go poorly and they eventually end up in exile 
out of the land because of this exact problem. Thus, this psalm proves to be true throughout Israel's history. When there is a king who delights himself in God's word and submits to it, the nation of Israel flourishes. In everything they do, they prosper. What's interesting, I was reading through First Chronicles this past week, and I came to First Chronicles chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. And this is where David is charging his son Solomon to build the temple. And this is what David says to him. He says, may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Be not dismayed. Thus, thus, as the anointed king, the representative example for Israel, then Solomon was to follow the words of the Psalms and delight himself in the Torah, knowing that he will walk with the Lord and lead God's people to be prosperous as he faithfully follows God's commands. And then something really cool is also happening in the text. I mean, this entire imagery of this man who loves God's word being compared to a tree planted by streams of water. Do you know where this kind of imagery has come forth in God's word previously to this? A tree planted by stream bearing fruit. Yeah, the garden. If you were to look over at Genesis chapter two, verses eight and nine, this imagery here in Psalm 1 just subtly evokes in our minds these words. For there we see that Yahweh plants a garden in Eden in the east. There are trees there that he causes to spring forth with abundant food. And we see there's even a river that waters the garden, including the trees. Thus, as my old seminary professor notes on Psalm 1-3, he says, there's this there's poetic effect suggesting that meditating on the Torah meditating on God's word, what that does is it mediates the presence of God so that those who walk with God in the word experience a renewal of what life would have been like in Eden. Thus, just as Adam and Eve walked with the Lord in the cool of the day, so too the righteous can walk with the Lord as we meditate and murmur and preach the truths of God's word to our souls and have sweet communion with God, even in a broken and fallen world. See, the picture here in Psalm 1 is that God is like the gardener who transplants the righteous near good streams of water, which is his word, and as a result, we bear fruit. And then specifically, the truths of God's word sustain the righteous so that their leaves never wilt. The righteous then are evergreens, but evergreens that also bear fruit. My evergreens do not do that. They produce nothing wonderful except for a great sap smell. But, but, but the righteous, they are evergreens who also bear fruit, pointing to the reality of their position as being the righteous. Again, in contrast to this beautiful imagery of God's presence and sturdiness and fruitfulness in the life of the king, we see then that those who do not do that are fruitless. The, the psalmist, he doesn't point to a tree, but he rather points to chaff that the wind just drives away. Now, if you are not someone who has threshed grain recently, you're like, I don't know what chaff is. Well, if you get some grain, you harvest it. And then you either beat out the grain, either by hand, that doesn't really happen in Canada, but by a machine, uh, the heavier things fall and you use the heavier grains in order to make bread, pasta, all the wonderful things that will be on our tables this evening. And, and, and the chaff is the excess little flakes. I think of it every time I get my chicken feed, because I have chickens, and uh, and there's the seed, but then there's this nasty, gross stuff that when I dump the seed, it just flies away. And I think, chaff. Uh, so that doesn't help you. Um, you can come feed my chickens, and then you'll have a great image in your mind. Uh, but but that's, that's what chaff is. It's, it's this little dust-like particles that are good for nothing. They are useless. And that's what the psalm says the wicked are like. They're those who rebel against God's word. They refuse to submit to it, and instead, they scoff at it. 
As we see in Psalm chapter two, they plot against God and is anointed there like chaff that the wind drives away. Which brings us to the very last two verses of Psalm one, where we see here where these two paths end in very different places. So we've been kind of seeing this motif, these two different paths, path of the righteous, path of the wicked. So what we see here is, is they end in very different places. So verse five picks up right where verse four ended, talking about the wicked. All right, so verse four, the wicked are like chaff, the wind drives away. And then verse five, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now this reference here to the judgment is our indicator that we are talking about the end of the path, the end of the path that the wicked are on. Because it points to a future coming day, the day of judgment. Now, in a minute, we're going to talk about the nations raging against uh, the Lord and his anointed in the present. And how the, the wrath of the Father will terrify the wicked through the conquering of the anointed king. But here at the end of Psalm 1, before we get there, we're told how everything will end. The end of days. Thus, our eyes are cast to the future. And we see how the way of the wicked will perish. But for the blessed who have taken refuge in the king, who are called the blessed of the king, there will be vindication. For the sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous as we stand and welcome the king into his kingdom. Thus, this future day, having the end in mind from the beginning is important. And here's why, especially as we're about to go into Psalm 2, but also as we live our lives here in Canada. See, it will not always look like the way of the wicked is perishing. You know what I mean? It, it will not always, not always look like that. It, it will not always look like their way is fruitless. Oftentimes, we will, we will think that they are powerful and fruitful and strong. And here's why grasping a good understanding of how all things end is helpful for us. See, because as we examine the wickedness that we could easily point out in our world today here in Canada, and then globally, as we see them being wise, strong, and powerful, oftentimes we'll be tempted to think that we are on the losing side. You know what I mean? You've thought that in the last two, three years? Man, am I on the losing side? What is happening? And here's where it's important to remember this, this future day. There is a day of judgment coming when everyone will stand before the throne of God and on that day, the wicked will be judged. So though it seems like the wicked are flourishing, that is a short-sighted view of eternity. For a day is coming, we can be assured, and on that day, the wicked will not stand or rise in the judgment. Now, what does it mean to stand or rise in the judgment? Well, as we know, the righteous will rise at the end to meet the coming king and welcome him into his kingdom, right? We know from later on in, in the history of the Bible that we will rise in the air and welcome the Lord. Well, on that day, it is not the wicked who will rise and meet the Lord and welcome him into his kingdom. They will not rise and meet the Messiah. Thus, the psalmist here is, is writing, encouraging them to have confidence that on that day when this great Messiah comes, we will be those who rise to meet him in the air and to bring him back into his kingdom. And it reminds the righteous that there'll be a final future judgment where they will be vindicated. Now, again, this is important as we turn and see the very first line of Psalm 2, because in those first three lines, what do we do? We see that there are the nations of the earth that are raging and plotting. Now, what's really interesting here, something else that, that ties these two Psalms together, is that, do you remember the king in Psalm 1? how he is muttering to himself, meditating on the word of God, delighting in it, rehearsing Israel's history and the precepts and the regulations from God's word. Remember, you might've had in your mind kind of like a crazy man walking down Portage and Maine, just mumbling to himself. That was kind of like the king talking about God's word. Well, this exact same word murmuring or muttering and meditating is used here. Now, you won't notice it in your English translations. You will see the word plot. That is the same word, the word meditate. But notice that the wicked aren't meditating as the king is upon the words of God and how they might be faithful to obey God's word. Rather, as we saw in Psalm 1, they are those who scoff at God's word 
And in Psalm 2, we see that they are continually saying to one another what their goal, their aim is to do. Their aim as people, they're constantly talking about it, murmuring, plotting, scheming together is how do we burst the bonds and the ropes of God? See that in verse 2. Or sorry, verse three. How do we burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords? How do we do that? What's interesting about that is if we consider that in context, what they are trying to burst off, what they are trying to get off of them is none other than Yahweh's promises and regulations in the Torah that they constantly scoff at. That's what they go around thinking about and meditating and discussing all the day long. They are scoffers. And the idea here is there's this table of nations and they're setting themselves up against the king and against God, planning for war. And yet, how does God respond? What we see in verses four to six, that God responds to those who sit in the seat of scoffers. And we see the first thing he does is he is also sitting. And he is laughing at them. So, so there's, this, there's this immediate linguistic connection between the wicked who are sitting in their seats, they are scoffing at Yahweh in Psalm 1, but yet, surprise, surprise, Yahweh is sitting in the heavens, unable to be attacked by them, and he is scoffing right back at those who think so little of him. I mean, if you think about it, the, the entire scene here is rather comical, isn't it? Like, there are these wicked kings of the earth, There are these created men who believe that they can thwart the plans and purposes of the creator God of the universe who fills their lungs with air, with every breath that they breathe. They need to sleep each night. He never slumbers. They need to eat. He does not need to eat. They they are powerless. He is powerful. The only explanation for why these men don't fall on their faces out of fear of Yahweh is because they have not experienced his wrath and his fury, not yet. See, the problem here is that these wicked nations, these men are plotting against God. The problem is that they think too little of God and they think way too much of themselves. It reminds us of when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers Right? They don't fear him because they had not seen the terrifying majesty that would be his as the prime minister of Egypt. One day they would, and on that day, they would be incredibly fearful of his wrath. So Yahweh assures us that it is the same, but infinitely greater with his wrath and fury. See, when Yahweh will speak to them in his wrath and judgment, he will terrify them. And so Yahweh's only response to these rebellious and wicked men is this. This is all he says to them. I imagine this is kind of like one of my kids comes up to me and it's like, I'm going to beat you up. I'm like, yeah, all right, buddy. And this is what the Lord says. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See here, God is saying, you may conspire against me all that you want. You can conspire against me. You can conspire against my Messiah. I have plans of my own to set my king on my holy hill, and it cannot be thwarted by you. And this reference to God's holy hill is a reference to the temple mount, where the temple was to be built. That's what God is doing. He's assuring his people that he's establishing his kingdom and his king, and on the day of judgment that is coming against those who oppose him. Thus, all this conspiring that they are doing will lead to nothing. They are like chaff that the wind just blows away. It's good for nothing. And God on that day will bring swift judgment. And then verses seven to nine, we see that after God speaks, the anointed one, the Messiah, he speaks. This is the third voice of the text. Now, as we know from the unfolding of this book, it in the immediate context, right? The anointed king is who? Yell out at me. Who's the anointed king? David. David, right? The first two books of Psalms will trace his rise to power amidst suffering. Book two is all about his kingdom. So we know that David is the anointed king of Israel. But look at verse seven. And notice with me in the vocabulary used here of what the anointed king is told by God. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Do you know where the Lord calls David his son? who he has begotten? Do you know where that is? 
nowhere. You will not find that phrase about David in your Bible. But do you know who you'll see it about? Solomon. 2 Samuel chapter 7. There, God speaks and says, you are my son. I'll be to him a son, a father, he'll be to me as a son. And if we examine, so as we examine David's life throughout scripture, we see those words are never spoken about him, but they are spoken about Solomon. So David here, what he's doing, and he's, as he's writing this psalm, as we know from Acts chapter two, David is looking forward to the reign of Solomon, his son, and the promises of God given to him in 2 Samuel 7. And he's rehearsing what he knows to be true about the unfolding of God's covenant with him, which is where we're kind of seeing these wide sweeping statements in verse, verses eight and nine, where this Davidic king is, is being told by Yahweh, ask me for the nations and I'll give them to you. The ends of the earth, I'll give them as your possession. God's rule will be over all of the earth and all of God's enemies will be vanquished as this king breaks down the enemies of God with a rod of iron and just dashes them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Just putting all this together from Psalm chapter one, Psalm chapter two, the picture here that's unfolding for us is that there will arise this anointed king of Israel who as he is faithful to God, as he delights in God's law and meditates on it, he will be blessed by God and he will see victory among the nations. The nations will bow before him. Thus, though they appear to be gaining ground as they're conspiring together, in the end, they won't succeed. Rather, they will come under his thumb to the extent that the earth will become the possession of God's king and God's kingdom. And the wicked will come under judgment for all of their scoffering. Now, unless we read these verses and begin to think that God is cruel, maybe, for scoffing at these wicked men and laughing at them, and for guaranteeing the success of his anointed king, let it also be noted that in verses 10 to 12, well, really 5 to 12, God sent fair and forthright warning to these kings of the earth to repent. See, God didn't bring judgment without proper warning. First, these men knew God's word. They knew who his king was, but they rejected him. They conspired against how to rebel against him. Yet God still mercifully engages them. He encourages them while they may to be wise in verse 10. To, to not scoff at the Torah, but rather to submit to it and to join with the congregation of the righteous by submitting to the king and serving the Lord with fear and by following the example of the king and delighting in God's word. See, if they would serve the Lord with fear and kiss the son, which is a symbol that subjects gave to their masters to show honor and allegiance, then they would be pardoned and forgiven and find refuge in the king, not judgment. Thus, they are the ones who will decide whether they will humble themselves and submit to the anointed king and serve the Lord with fear or whether they will perish under the reign of the coming king. So as we're thinking about Psalm 1 and 2, we're reflecting on the original audience. As David wrote this psalm, as they sung it and meditated upon it, we, we see some really important themes that will come up over and over and over again in God's word. Firstly, Psalm 1 points to this ideal Israelite who was supposed to be typified by their king, who was to model faithfulness by refusing to walk down the path of the wicked and instead would delight himself in the law of the Lord day and night as he meditated upon it just constantly thinking and speaking and reminding himself and others of God's faithfulness throughout the generations. And as he does, this king would experience God's blessing on his own kingdom. He would see all of his enemies, all of their scheming come undone as he faithfully followed God's word and he would continue long in the kingdom, he and his children, ultimately seeing the whole earth come under his righteous reign. But as we zoom out from this immediate context and consider all of Israel's history, so, so, Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they come back out of exile. They're back into the promised land. They're, they're reflecting on all of God's big story so far in the book of Chronicles. One thing becomes glaringly true is that no king of Israel ever did Psalm 1, nor had the victory of Psalm 2. Not a single one of them. None of their lives were marked by spotless perfection or innocence, or faithfulness to delight in God's word more than sin. I mean, even David, right? Not David. Not Solomon either. 
definitely not Jeroboam. And, and on and on and on we could go. See, here's the point. Just as Adam failed in the garden to expand the borders of the garden and to multiply and fill the earth with God's image and likeness, so too every single king of Israel would fail. So that eventually, instead of conquering the nations, Israel is conquered by the nations. Just as Moses prophesied would happen in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 4 and 28, 32, Israel failed to see this ideal Israelite lead their nation and the seed of the serpent was not crushed. In fact, they seemed to be succeeding in thwarting God's plans and purposes as they conspired against the Lord and sought to cast away all of God's promises and regulations in the Torah, leading all the way to Israel's exile out of the land as wicked kings joined the nations in scoffing God's word. But God, for the sake of his glory and according to his covenants and promises, was merciful and brought the nation back from exile. Thus, when this songbook was being brought together in its final form by Ezra, Israel knows the importance of a representative example of godliness for the nation. They know their history. They know how they flourished under godly leadership and how they firsthand experienced discipline from the Lord under wicked leadership. So now, back in the land, bringing together the final form of this hymn book, it begins with these two psalms, highlighting the importance of the ideal Israelite to arise and to lead God's people into faithfulness. Not only that, but Psalm 1 also functions as a warning for the nation to remain committed to God's word. They must not follow the downward progression of sin where they end up scoffing the law just like their forefathers did. Rather, they, as the redeemed, are encouraged to see this ideal Israelite pictured here in Psalm 1, to see his delight in the law of the Lord and to see an example that is worthy of their imitation, even though nobody in front of them is living this out. Not a single person. They they have this ideal Israelite beckoning them to be faithful. Thus, the way of the righteous is marked by faithfulness to God's law, to knowing and obeying and loving and delighting in God's word, trusting that God who will bring the Messiah, his king, would very usher in the very kingdom of God so that they might do what Adam and David and Solomon had failed to do up until this point. And do you know the crazy thing about this psalm is that this psalm, written by David and then sung by Israel for hundreds of years, they, they would sing this psalm patiently, trusting and waiting upon God's promises to come to fruition in hope that one day God's anointed Messiah and king would come from the line of David and that he would take his rightful place as Israel's king who crushed all of his enemies under his feet and who ushered in the kingdom of God. And they would sing of this faithful Israelite leading God's people as this perfect representative example who would turn away from the path of the wicked and walk in the path of the righteous as he delighted in and cherished and loved the Lord all of his days. And this was the hope and the expectation that just filled their mouths. Every Sabbath, they would gather and remember this song until in the fullness of time, God the Son laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time to fulfill the longings of the hearts of God's people as he, the seed of the woman coming through the line of David, lived out Psalm 1 perfectly. He, the true and better Israelite, is all that Psalm 1 is meant to point us to as Jesus lives a flawless and perfect life, perfect in every way, completely consistent in living out all of these qualifications. For Jesus, as we remember, was the only one who was tempted yet without sin. Thus, he never, not once, walked in the counsel of the wicked. He never listened to their chirping and was never swayed by them, nor did he ever stand in the way of sinners, nor did he sit in the seat of scoffers and scoff at the law of the Lord. Rather, Jesus is the only one who delighted in and meditated upon the law, communing perfectly with the Father as he taught with his words and by his example what, what, what God's law looked like, lived out fleshed out as he discipled and taught what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. He is the tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. And in all that Jesus does, Jesus prospers. 
though Jesus was persecuted and walked through suffering here in this life, leading ultimately to his death, he truly prospered. For on account of his labors, he secured the salvation and justification of his people. I mean, fruitfulness beyond compare, eternal fruit. And throughout his earthly life and ministry, don't we see the raging of the nations? Don't don't we see the kings and the rulers of the people setting themselves up against Jesus? Don't we see him suffer and die at the hands of these wicked men who set themselves up against him and against the Father? Do you remember what Jesus is betrayed by? See, Judas, instead of kissing the son, humbly falling before him, uses this symbol from Psalm 2 to betray him. Isn't that fascinating? When, when Jesus is on the cross and dies, it seems like all is lost, doesn't it? It seems like the kings and the rulers are stronger than God. And they can, in fact, thwart God's purposes and plans. As Jesus walks through suffering and stands condemned like a common criminal, hanging, beaten, bruised, naked upon a cross and dying. And yet three days later, we see that this was the plan of God all along. For the serpent and the seed of the serpent would bite the heel of the seed of the woman, but the son would then come and crush the head of the serpent. Thus in Jesus' life, he was the ideal Israelite, flawless and perfect, and like the spotless lamb led to the slaughter on behalf of the sins of his people, he stood condemned in their place. So Jesus was led to the cross where he, the sinless one, stood condemned in our place, suffering the horrors of the wrath and the judgment of God in our place, suffering the just penalty for all of our wicked ways. See, the righteous was in the place of the wicked. He took all of our punishment upon himself and then he died. But three days later, he rose from the dead for our justification, conquering over Satan's sin and death so that we who are wicked, who are caught in cycles of sin, in these downward trajectories of rebellion against God, who hate the words of God and scoff at it, might hear the good news of Jesus and be made wise unto salvation through the scriptures and warned to not continue in our open rebellion. Rather, we are called to kiss the Son not like Judas, but rather like Psalm 2 of 12 says, to humbly come before Jesus as the king of all creation, to submit to him as our king and serve him as our God, savior and king and the father as well with fear. Thus, if you're here and you're not a Christian, Psalm 1 and 2 explains that your situation before God is a frightening one. What we know from God's word is you can't be good enough or moral enough to work your way out of this reality that one day you will stand before God and the only question on that day will be, what did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? Did you, did you admit your sinful state before him? Did, did, you, did you humbly come before him in allegiance, repenting, turning away from the path, of, path of, of wickedness? Did you find refuge in him or not? Friend, and how you will answer that question will have an eternal significance. For, for you will either spend eternity future suffering under the righteous wrath of the Father because you refuse to come to Jesus in faith, or you will spend eternity future in the joyful and wonderful kingdom of Jesus, composed of men and women from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people who will rise at his coming to meet him and usher in his kingdom and then be gathered around his throne celebrating his victory over the wicked. So if you're not a Christian, the call for you then from this text, the blatant call for you, is that judgment against your sin is coming against you. The fury of God's wrath will overtake you. You will not get away. So the call then for you is the same as the call for these wicked rulers and kings. 
Will you, while you may, turn and believe upon Jesus? Will you kiss the Son? Will you flee to him for refuge? Because he will forgive you and pardon you. So will you? And then if you've taken refuge in Jesus as his people, as the congregation of the righteous, we now are called blessed at the end of Psalm chapter 2, at the beginning, right at the beginning of verse, or at the very end of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, friends, our faith will be evidence as we refuse to walk in the way of the wicked and instead delight ourselves in the law of the Lord. In fact, one of the results of the inward regenerating work of the Spirit in our lives that evidences the fact that we belong to Jesus is that we are not those who rebel against God's Word, the Bible. Rather, our entire being approves and endorses it. We delight in God's Word. We meditate on it. We pour over it. So, before you assume that because you prayed a prayer when you were five or because you were baptized into a church or maybe because you come from a certain faith tradition, don't immediately assume that you are someone who is in the way of the righteous. Friends, the Pharisees thought they were in the way of the righteous. They knew theology way better than you. They obeyed way better than you. But they did not delight in the law of the Lord. There's no loving the things of God. What about your heart? If you were to be really honest with yourself, is that you? Do you delight in the law of the Lord? Or if you're honest, do you delight in meditating upon ways that you can rebel against God's word? Are you, are you constantly looking for times when you can sneak away and participate in the sin that you actually crave. So that thing that, that you constantly find yourself thinking about all day long, about how good it was to sin in that way, to delight in it, do you, do you scheme creative ways to provide more opportunities to sit and scoff at God's law with your mind and heart? while professing with your lips that you delight in God's law? What do you delight in? Friend, you might not be a Christian. You, you might have just convinced yourself that you are while hiding in a shroud of sin. The other option is you also might be a Christian who honestly just needs to bring some junk in your life to the light. Maybe you need to confess your sins to one another. Maybe you need biblical counseling from your brothers and sister in our church because for far too long you've been walking in the counsel of the world and it has led to wickedness. Maybe you have great pride which keeps you from sharing your sin. Think about that in a place like this, or a small group setting. How easy is it for, for me to say, how many of you are sinners? And you'll say, me, me. But it's a totally different matter when I have to come and share my sin with you. Right? 
or when I sin against you in some way, when I have to bring sin to light, that is when your salvation is evident that you are on the path of the righteous. But if there is none of that, why do you have confidence before the Lord? You ought not. And I know too in this broken world that we're in that oftentimes our passions and love have been so perverted over time of just walking in the counsel of the wicked and standing in our sin and scoffing at God's law. Maybe today, Maybe today is a good opportunity for you to repent of some things. Friend, you will not have victory over sin in your life if you continue to walk down the path of the wicked, nor should you have any confidence before the Lord. In Psalm 1, we see Christ as our perfect example. While we will never be fully free from sin as long as we are in this life, we will, Lord willing, confess our sins to the Lord and to one another, and we will grow in grace and sanctification throughout our lives. We will not continue down the spiral of sinfulness as we grow in delight of God's word. So, for example, we might walk in the counsel of the wicked, and then the Spirit will convict us of that. We will change our way of thinking, and we will conform to God's voice in his word. Or we might stand in sin thinking, I can never change. This is just who I am. But friend, if you have turned to Christ, if he is your refuge, that is not who you are any longer. That's who you once were, yes and amen. But now this is not who you are. This sin does not need to mark your life. This is not something that you just do any longer. See, so as we're reading and praying through Psalm 1, we need to meditate on God's word this week. Maybe there are things you need to repent of, to confess to brothers and sisters in your life who will pray for you, offer you biblical counsel, and help carry that load with you. And that would be my hope for us as God's people, because we don't walk this road alone. We firstly commune with God through his word, and then secondly, we commune with one another as those who are in the congregation of the righteous. Now, I just have one last note of application for us as Christians living in Canada today. As we look at the landscape of Canada, laws being passed and things being celebrated by our culture, even Christian culture, all the various ways that are rebelling against God's word, as we see people that are wanting to choose for themselves what is good and what is evil, all those times when we might be tempted to believe that the wicked are triumphing and God is in control, look to Psalm 1 and 2. See the righteousness of Jesus. See that those who trust in God's word, although they are maligned and ridiculed as others scoff at God's laws and at Jesus as his king, think he might be easier if we just went along with it and called evil good and good evil like they do. To us, we are given Psalm 1 and 2 to meditate and sing in this age and in the in-between time where Jesus has come and yet we don't see all nations under his feet yet. Psalm 2 tells us that this day is coming. There's not a single promise of God that will not be forgotten. And so as we wait, as we see our culture grow and their scoffing against God and his word, as the nations rage and meditate on ways to bring suffering into the life of the righteous and make war on God's people, friend, I would encourage you to walk through this life not filling your mind and your mouth with silly nonsense. Don't try to figure out the meditations of the wicked. Don't give yourselves purely to scheming over and pouring over how the wicked are trying to plot against you as God's people. Rather, meditate on the law of the Lord. Let that fill your mind and your heart. Think and speak and exhort one another to remember the promises of God. Stay away from sin. Delight yourself in the law of the Lord and you will commune with God and bear fruit in every season. And though the day may come 
where they may kill your body, you have confidence that they can never touch your soul. Friend, you have found refuge in Christ Jesus, and you are called blessed. And in him you are. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us as we walk through our lives that we may firstly and foremostly see this psalm, these two psalms pointing to the beautiful reality of the coming kingdom of Jesus, that he is our idyllic Israelite, is the one who was faithful where we all fail. May we rejoice in the coming day of his kingdom. May we longingly look forward to that not giving our mind and our time and our mouths to the meditations and the schemes of the wicked, but rather may we give our mouths and our times and our affections and our hearts to meditating upon your word. May our conversation be filled with reminding one another of your word and your promises. Sanctify us as your people. May we be open about our sin with one another. Lead us, we pray. Let our salvation be evident that we are walking on the path of righteousness and not in the way of folly. And may we do so by turning away from the path of the wicked and instead turning to your counsel in your word. And as we do, commune with us. love you and trust you and we look forward to the day when your kingdom will come your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven we love you we ask this in christ's name amen